0: Good morning, and happy Father's Day. It's a, it's a unique privilege we have as believers on Father's Day to come together and worship and serve and gather because of our Heavenly Father. And What a joyous reminder it is. Um, I know all too well, because I am one, that uh, human fathers are far from perfect, and yet we have our Heavenly Father who we look to and we praise and we uh Worship this morning as the one who has cared for us, who has created us, and given us the ability to to live and to breathe, to enjoy the time we have with family, to uh, enjoy this time this morning as a church family. So, welcome as we celebrate Father's Day with a special meaning as believers this morning. Have you ever gone into a situation certain you know the outcome? It's certain that you understand every detail. You headed into a meeting and event or whatever it may be, and you know what is going on. You have confidently and assuredly ascertained everything that persons are thinking, what they've meant, you and maybe you alone are able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of every person in that room. Only to, as time goes on, realize that uh, your foregone conclusions were far from accurate to watch all of your preconceived notions, all of your assumptions evaporate or begin to evaporate in front of you. This presumption that we have, this assuming, this judging is nothing new. It's existed nearly as long as mankind has been created. And Jesus was himself a victim, if you will, of this type of presumptuous judgmentalism and accusations. This morning, we're going to observe one of those encounters where persons approach him assuming, presuming upon Jesus and his ministry and his method of ministry. Our goal this morning as we look at this will be twofold. It will be, one, to root out the pride and the selfishness in our own lives that leads us to the same presumptuous and judgmental thoughts and actions. And secondly, as we look at the text this morning, we're going to find our theology and our understanding of Jesus and his ministry refined. We'll be exhorted to avoid the sin of syncretism. To maintain our distinctiveness as disciples of Jesus Christ as the world is continually trying to eliminate those distinctions but as we do this an important word of caution is to remember that the world is not our enemy it may look like it at times it may feel like it at times the world's not our enemy people are not the enemy they're the mission field and we need to remember that our battle as Paul said to the Ephesians Is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So as we turn our attention to the text this morning, if you haven't already opened there, you can open to Matthew chapter 9. So we continue our study through the gospel of Matthew, and we'll begin down in verse 14. Matthew records, Then the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to him, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and a, a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, the wine pours out, the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Pray with me as we delve into this text this morning and uh, Jesus' illustration and this presumption of these Johannine disciples. Father, we come to the text this morning desiring to have your Spirit illumine our hearts and our minds that we would rightly understand, interpret, and most importantly, apply your word to our lives. May we this morning be hearers and doers of your word. In your name, amen. Well, last week we observed some of the chief antagonists of Jesus' earthly ministry, the Pharisees. You may remember they sought to sow doubt and discord with Jesus' disciples. And they did this by going to Jesus' disciples, apart from Jesus, and questioning his ministry. Why? Because he was eating with sinners. this week we encounter another group questioning the ministry of Jesus. Interestingly, it's over food again. This time it's a little bit more of an unsuspecting source. It's some of John the Baptist's disciples. You may recall that John the Baptist had a vibrant, though a little bit eccentric, ministry that served as the precursor to Jesus's ministry. John, a cousin of Jesus, was the forerunner, the voice in the wilderness calling out, "Make straight the way of the Lord." We were already reminded this morning: Jesus was baptized. By John the Baptist in order to fulfill all righteousness that is to bring to fruition the will of God well shortly after Jesus' baptism John was taken into custody by Herod the Tetrarch so the disciples of John had been on their own for several weeks or months at this point they had been disciples without a discipler now as Jesus is engaged in his Galilean ministry we see here some of these disciples of John appear on the scene to question the character of Jesus, his disciples, and the ministry. You look down at verse 14, these Johannine disciples ask a question about fasting. But it becomes really clear, and you may have already picked up on this, fasting's not their real concern, is it? This question marks a deeper intention on their parts, namely to correct Jesus and to help him fix his ministry. You see, Jesus is messed up, apparently. He's not religiously fastidious enough. He's not pious enough for these Johannine epistles. So they want to help him out. Their intentions appear benign. And note what the disciples say, and observe how these words do, in fact, reveal this intent. They they say, then the disciples of John came to him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And again, before we assume that these disciples of John have some evil intent like the Pharisees, note how different their approach is from the Pharisees that we looked at last week. These Johannine disciples went directly to Jesus to ask their question and provide correction rather than grab the disciples off to the side and subvert Jesus. They don't have some hidden agenda in some attempt to undermine Jesus' ministry, though they are calling it into question. They're not attempting to sow discord among the disciples, though they question the method. They went direct to the source. They go to Jesus himself. You need to give them credit for that at least. They may misunderstand Jesus' ministry. They do, in fact, express poor theology. They are greatly confused. But they don't seem to demonstrate the evil motives like we see with the Pharisees. They engage Jesus over the issue of fasting. Last week it was feasting, now it's fasting. And it may seem like an interesting topic or choice to us today to engage on. I mean, if you wanted to question someone or correct someone's religious practice, today you probably wouldn't start with fasting. However, fasting was a common religious practice in the ancient world, especially within Judaism. In spite of its popularity, however, Within the Old Testament or the law, the only fast, there was only one fast prescribed, and that was the fast on the Day of Atonement. That was it. That was all that was prescribed. But by the New Testament times, pious Jews, especially the Pharisees and religious leaders, had created additional times of fasting. And this included every Monday and Thursday and any other time of serious need to call on the Lord, whether personal or corporately. So it's likely that as these disciples of John approach Jesus, they're referring to one of these Monday or Thursday fasts. It was likely a religious day for those who were particularly religious. Maybe their stomachs were growling and they were a little bit upset that they get to eat. But they were concerned. They were being particularly religious, and they wanted to demonstrate their piety and mourning, again, whether over personal or national sin. And as they looked around, they didn't see this same piety from Jesus and his disciples, or so they thought. So some of these Johannine disciples saw instead an occasion for accusation against Jesus' ministry because of his lack of ritualistic fasting. Now, you may be wondering, didn't Jesus just teach on fasting? and you'd be right. We had just been in the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus addressed fasting directly, didn't he? And he didn't say don't fast. What did he say? If you fast, do it in secret. Either the disciples of John had clearly missed the Sermon on the Mount and the emphasis that fasting was to be done privately to the Lord and not to men, or they were completely discounting that teaching. One of the two. Regardless, they now presume to cast judgment because they are not observing any fasting. They wanted to see from Jesus and his disciples the same form, the same type of piety that they and the religious leaders of Israel flaunted. Now again, I think it's possible the disciples were trying to help. Maybe they thought that because they didn't see this outward fasting that Jesus and his disciples Needed to be exhorted to mourn over sin, to pursue more righteous living and holiness. They wanted to instruct them in the better way. But it's this presumption that again reminds me of how much more I am like the antagonist than the protagonist of Scripture in these stories. I'm much more like these disciples of John than Jesus and his disciples. I want so badly to read myself in as the hero of the story when really, if I'm honest with myself, and I believe it's probably true of many here today, that we are much closer to the antagonist or the villain, at least those who misunderstand and act with presumption. If we stop and think about it, we assume and presume all the time. We don't see someone pray before they eat. Clearly, they are not as serious about following Jesus. Someone chooses not to take communion one morning. Well, surely something must be wrong with them. I wonder what's going on in their life. Someone isn't singing this morning. Well, why don't they enjoy worshiping the Lord? What's wrong with them? Someone's singing too loudly. Why do they only care about their own voice? Someone didn't greet me with a smile. Well, how selfish of them possible that they're hurting and they need the smile someone ignored me maybe they didn't even see you and yet we jump to conclusions and presume over and over and over again we assume and judge all the time and in doing this we expose our ignorance our selfishness and our self-righteousness this is why Jesus addressed this tendency within each of us, to judge, to assume, and to convict others when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wasn't talking about obvious acts of wrong and sin, but those snap judgments that we make. We're very quick to assume we know the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We are very quick to place ourselves in the seat of God. Often without even realizing we're doing it. In response to this attitude, Spurgeon said, It would be better to be deceived a hundred times than to live a life of suspicion. He then goes on to say, Brethren, shun this vice, that of habitual suspicion, by renouncing the love of self. Judge it to be a small matter what men think or say of you. Care only for their treatment of our Lord. Well, these Johannine disciples have judged Jesus and his disciples, and they're now trying to set him straight. By the way, this is another parenthetical. This is exactly the opposite of what biblical counseling and discipleship should look like. You don't go to someone with a foregone conclusion to correct them. You go to learn, to actively listen. You slowly and carefully draw conclusions. And so we see these errors here of these Johannine disciples in the attitude, the thinking, as they approach Jesus, but that's not the only error. There's an additional error that you can observe in the question of the disciples. And again, it's not just these disciples, it's us. Where the first mistake was in their attitudes and assumption, the second is with their theology. Notice that this group of John's disciples, notice what they do. They identify three entities here. You see the three groups they identified, right? The first are themselves, and then the Pharisees, and the Jesus and his disciples. You have these three groups. And what they are implicitly saying is that there should really be no distinction in our religious practice. No real difference between these three groups, Whether knowingly or unknowingly, these disciples are expecting and rebuking Jesus for his lack of religious syncretism. Syncretism its a fancy word. You probably don't use it every day. I don't think I used it prior to this morning, this past week. It's the combining of different beliefs. Well, blending practices from various traditions. And I would say if there's ever a message for the church today, this is it. In an age crying for syncretism, for everybody to look the same, asking, why don't you be more inclusive like that church? Why don't you allow women pastors like that church? Why don't you agree with those determined to make the Bible fit an agenda rather than let the Bible dictate the agenda? Why can't you do this? Why can't you look more like those nice people? Everywhere we turn, there is a call to look more like this group, that group, or at times even the world but Christianity is distinctive. It was markedly different than first-century Judaism it was markedly different from the paganism of Rome it was markedly different than any other of the Gentile cities and this distinctiveness is what drew people. It offered hope. It offered something new something they had not heard before. When the church looks like the world, when it loses that distinctiveness, it loses the saltiness and the light that we saw in Matthew 5. See, the error of John's disciples is that they perceive or expect nothing different from Jesus and his ministry than they had seen in all the religious piety of their day. So Jesus sets out to disrupt this thinking. These disciples of John had added to the teaching of John, and they had added the ascetic religious demands of the Pharisees, and they expected Jesus' disciples to do the same thing. Jesus corrects this wrong thinking about who he is and what he expects from a true disciple with three masterful word pictures. first one's there in verse 15 and regards a wedding and Jesus skillfully parries the accusing question and responds with an answer that cuts deep this passage that talks about fasting is not a passage about fasting it doesn't teach us anything about fasting other than verifying its appropriateness after the time of Jesus in other words there's nothing wrong with fasting Instead, Jesus is teaching and explaining the significance of his identity and his ministry and the important implications it has for man-made religious systems. The first thing that Jesus does is expose the inappropriateness of the Johannine disciples' question. And he does this by asking, would you suggest fasting at a wedding? Would you really take a joyous occasion, one of celebration, and turn it into mourning? Weddings are a joyous celebration. In first century Israel, they would last days. They knew how to throw a wedding. People would come from out of town, so let's make the most of their visit. And it would go on, and it was a joyous time. The expression here, wedding guests, is maybe a little more literally, the sons of the bridal hall. And it refers particularly to that group of wedding guests who stood closest to the groom. We might call them the groomsmen today, but it may have been men and women who stood close to the groom. They played an essential part in the wedding ceremony. And these people are necessarily preoccupied with the marriage. That's why they're there. Mourning and fasting is the furthest thing from their minds when they're there with the bridegroom celebrating the wedding. And so the answer to Jesus' question is obvious. The bridegroom's attendants cannot be fasting while the feasting is at its height and the bridegroom is here. That would be ridiculous. These disciples of John have totally misunderstood the ministry and message of John himself. And now they've misunderstood Jesus' ministry. I might be going out on a limb here, but I would suggest these are not the best and brightest of John's disciples. John clearly understood who Jesus was in his ministry. He had proclaimed it when baptizing Jesus. In fact, the reason Jesus uses the wedding analogy with these Johannine disciples is because John himself had used the wedding analogy. In John 3:29, John said, "I am the best man of the bridegroom." And so that picture had already been painted. All Jesus is doing is using a verbal allusion to the same image. When Jesus uttered those words, it should have cut deep to those disciples. This response by Jesus should have stung with surgical precision. They should have recognized immediately the wedding imagery from John's preaching. And they should have recognized that they have missed the message. They're looking for something that fits the culture, something that's easily adapted to Judaism with its outward appearance of piety, and they could not be more wrong. Note, too, that Jesus does not say there's to be no fasting as long as the festivities go on. Notice where he focuses our attention. It's as long as what? The bridegroom is with them. In other words, all worship is relegated and ruled by Christ. He is the center. He is the one who creates joy. He is the reason for celebration and worship. This bridegroom imagery is used throughout the Old Testament. Jesus' words are, as D.A. Carson says, implicitly Christological. Jesus himself is the messianic bridegroom. The messianic age has dawned. This was the hope of the Old Testament. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to Isaiah. Isaiah 54. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 54, verse 5. Behold, your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife, forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. Keep going to the right. Go to Isaiah 62, verse 4. There we read, it will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. Desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Turn to the book of Jeremiah, further to the right, in your Bibles. Jeremiah 31. There in Jeremiah 31, down in verse 32, and there's a lot more we could read, but it says, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. We read from Hosea 2 this morning, and I'll just mention that first verse or one of the first verses we read in verse 16, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will be called, that you will call me is she, that is, my husband, and will no longer call me Ba'ali, which is my master. The apostles, including the late added Paul, pick up on this Old Testament metaphor and Jesus' incarnation of the bridegroom throughout the epistles and the grafting in of the church into the promises of the bride. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There we read in verse 2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Ephesians 5, that famous Passage exemplifying the love a husband and wife should have for one another is a picture of Christ and the church. There in Ephesians five twenty-five, we read, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And then you can jump to Revelation 19. And there in Revelation, as we look to the return of Christ, as he comes for his bride, the church, we read in Revelation 19, verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And then two chapters over in Revelation 21, verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And a few verses later in verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Jesus didn't say that fasting was wrong or that it was inappropriate here. Just that it was inappropriate while the bridegroom was present. That's why we won't be fasting in mourning in heaven. Because we'll be with the bridegroom in the presence of Christ. Jesus then concludes by adding a note concerning being taken away. That is, until he is taken away. Notice, by the way, he didn't say going away until the bridegroom goes away, it's taken away. It's an allusion to violence. This taken away is an allusion to violence. In Isaiah 53, we read, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before her shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And it goes on to describe the suffering servant in that famous passage. Jesus here alludes even to the end of his life, to the crucifixion. In other words, as one commentator notes, there is a time of sorrow in store for the disciples when fasting will have real meaning. But now, in the presence of Jesus, they can but rejoice. And in the future, Jesus Jesus does not command them to fast. He just notes that in the future, they will fast. He simply prophesies that they will. And they did, as you see throughout Acts, they continued to fast, and so much of it was longing and mourning, looking forward to the return of Christ. Well, Jesus could have stopped here. He's thoroughly thrashed the disciples of John. But he isn't done. He gets more serious regarding their theological imprecision and misunderstanding in verses 16 and 17. Jesus turns from simply correcting their thinking now to a further rebuke of the danger of what they are trying to do. And Jesus uses two more word pictures to demonstrate the danger of trying to add to his ministry the trappings of Judaism. You see verse 16, it provides a picture of clothing, of mending older and torn clothing with the new, which results in a worse tear than you had to begin with because it stretches. Put simply, Jesus is not trying to patch up old Judaism. With all the added rituals, fastings, and practices, he is bringing something new. Anything other than a recognition that Jesus has come as the fulfillment of the old covenant and ushering in of the new covenant will result in something worse than before. That is, by the way, one of the great dangers of legalism. Legalism is a recapitulation of Judaism with its man-made rules and regulations that are said to be founded on Scripture. And it is so dangerous. It has the appearance of wisdom, but it lacks substance. While Paul's emphasis in the overall passage was a little bit different, he makes the same observation about legalism in Colossians 2. And you can turn there to Colossians 2.20. Paul says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Which all to refer to things destined to perish, perish with use, in accordance with the command and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. I'm going to get very personal for a moment. We have created a culture of religion here in our country, specifically in the South, that has very little to do with real Christianity and true Christian discipleship. We have traditions and we have teachings which have the appearance of wisdom. They seem right, they seem godly, especially when you've been raised and you've grown up in this culture. I mean, it's a part of you. But when it comes to our cultural practices and traditions, we have to be very careful that we are not letting the tail wag the dog. Our responsibility as believers here, now, where we are living today, is not to patch up this southern religion, especially where it demonstrates burdensome or legalistic practices. We must recognize that most of what passes as southern religion is not Christian at all. It has borrowed Christian ideas, it uses Christian speak, it even has the appearance of Christian teaching But like the Judaism of Jesus' day, it is a well without water, and it enslaves the followers. Rather than looking to these traditions, we have to return to Scripture as the authority. As those who love the Reformers and the Reformation, we seem to have forgotten those solas and the importance of Scripture alone. Not because you can't learn from any other source, period, but because Scripture is the primary authority. Everything else is to be judged by Scripture. So if it ever errs from Scripture, jettison it. That's what it means. Scripture alone is the authoritative source. You may learn from other persons, other books. You may even learn from unbelievers but it's all to be relegated and judged and evaluated through the lens of scripture alone. We must submit ourselves to scripture, not the traditions of men. The pull of culture or any other thing that may seek to influence us. The problem with allowing cultural Christianity to be the barometer is that culture changes. We've seen this in dramatic fashion over the past 20 years and even in the last 12 months. And when we are moored to the culture, we will drift with it and before long, we will find that we are nowhere near the safe harbor of scripture. Well, Jesus continues this emphasis on anchoring oneself to scripture, not the traditions of men, by providing a further correction to the poor theology of these Johannine disciples in verse 17. Jesus describes an error that all would have been familiar with. You don't put the new wine in old wineskins. It may seem frugal and reusing what you already have, but it will end in disaster. Pouring that new wine, which needs to continue the last stage of its fermentation process, and the gases which come out of that fermentation process expand and want to stretch the skin. And new wineskins made from animal skins were still malleable, and, and they'll expand with it the old ones are hard they're brittle and they're done expanding they're just going to break or split open then you've got you've wasted the wineskin and you've wasted the wine now the question you may be having is what do wine and wineskins have to do with Jesus's ministry and practice well, like the previous illustration Jesus is highlighting and introducing a new situation which could not simply be patched into old Judaism or poured into the old wineskins of Judaism. As Carson notes, new forms would have to accompany the kingdom Jesus was now inaugurating. To try and domesticate him and incorporate him into the matrix of established Jewish religion would only succeed in ruining both Judaism and Jesus' teaching. I'm gonna qualify that a little bit because I think it's more than just Judaism, it's specifically true, authentic worship of God that still existed among some Jews. Another writer identifies the two illustrations effectively make the point that Jesus was not simply bringing in a revised and updated Judaism or even founding a new sect within Judaism. What he was teaching and doing were such that they could not be contained within the accepted Jewish system with all of its cultural practices and everything else. In fact, to confine his followers within the limits of this old religion would be to invite disaster. It didn't mean that he was rejecting the Old Testament, far from it. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to reject them. What he repudiated was not Scripture, but the current religious practices that were allegedly based on Scripture. As we look at this, what what are we also to make of this final statement? Both are preserved. What are the both? Is it the new wine and new wineskin, or is it that by using new wineskins, the old wineskin and the new wine is preserved? There's really a couple of different lines of thinking, and though they arrive at a similar place, I believe the most natural reading is that the old wineskins and the new wine are both preserved. But the question that quickly follows is, what are the old wineskins and what is the new wine? And I think the answer is that the Old refers to what would become known as the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant and promises are to be preserved. And the theological implications of the Old Testament, even the promises yet to be fulfilled in the Old Testament, are all preserved. But they're preserved not through the old context of Pharisaic tradition, but through the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the only way to preserve the old is to understand Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Not the rejection, not the elimination, but the greatest example and correct picture of the Old Testament. Of what it means to love God and keep his commandments. And by understanding Jesus in this way, the promises of the old and the new will be preserved and realized. But if we try to fit Jesus into Judaism or Jesus into legalism, all will be lost. One theologian notes, the newness Jesus brings cannot be reduced to or contained by the traditions of Jewish piety. The messianic bridegroom has come. These parables bring unavoidable and radical implications for the entire structure of Jewish religion. And we see this in Acts, as we see the departure from Judaism toward new practices and expectations. First, by the Jews in Jerusalem who formed the early church, from which, like spokes on a wheel, went out the disciples and others to other churches, to establish other churches in mission fields. But they're still based on the theology of the Old Testament. In fact. You may remember, it's often used in different ways, but remember those Bereans, when Paul came to them. These were Jewish believers, or Jewish faithful Jews in Berea, and they used the Old Testament to verify and authenticate the ministry of the new covenant that Paul preached. There was no doing away with the old covenant. It was fulfilled, and it found its fulfillment in the new covenant. There's still promises to be realized, but there was a new covenant the new practices and customs of the church will take many different forms but they're still cloth still wine and still wineskins in other words there are many similarities between the old and the new covenant but similarity is not sameness in other words the church is not Israel though there are many similarities In light of this, it's important to be wary of imparting the practices of the Old Testament into the church, except where explicitly commanded in scripture. Also, as we think about the old, there's a couple words of warning, especially in this church age, as we think about the old covenant and the Old Testament. One, the principles upon which earlier practices were founded have not gone away. The practices may have changed, but the principles have not. God has not changed. His character is no different. Secondly, we must not despise the old practices, especially those that are prescriptive in the Old Testament. As Paul says, the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. doesn't mean we have to put ourselves under them, but it's, we don't despise them. Thirdly, we cannot do whatever we want. Sin is still identified and identifiable. And while we are free from legalistic requirements, what we are freed from and freed to do is now pursue Christ. And finally, I'll just make note that the book of Hebrews is an excellent manual on pursuing the new while appreciating the old. Isaiah described this time of new wine and wineskins when he says in Isaiah 43, Verse 19 through 21, behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. The disciples of John who approached Jesus and his disciples that day suffered from two errors. One of attitude, the other in doctrine. We're going to encounter persons all through this life who wrongly assume, pass judgment, and seek to correct us, just as Jesus received here. But firstly, we need to strive to ensure that we are not those people. We are not the ones making those snap judgments Secondly, we must learn to respond as Jesus responds, not in anger, not with violence, not with spite, but in gentleness, seeking to correct as we see Jesus doing. Regarding the second era, that of doctrine, one of the key implications for us is to fight against the temptation toward syncretism, to add cultural or even religious restrictions to Scripture. It may have the appearance of wisdom, but it runs the risk of creating a much more serious problem than you started with. You solve one problem only to create a new one, and the new one's worse than the one you solved. However, the answer to legalism is not to live a life saying I can do whatever I want. Our freedom from legalism is not a license to sin. Our attitude rather should be that of Paul in Romans 6, the beginning of 6, in verse 1 where he said, What shall I say then? Am I to continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The call to follow Jesus is one of responding to the love of Jesus, not one focused on rules and regulations. Following Jesus means to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle John says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And so in the New Covenant, the imperatives of Scripture, these commands, what they become are way marks, measurements, degrees on the thermometer of our love for Jesus Christ. They help us to see how much do I love Christ. Doing them doesn't cause me to love him. My love causes me to do them, and they become way marks and signs to show and demonstrate that I love Jesus Christ. But the moment I get focused on the sign and not Christ himself, my love wanes. And that's where legalism comes in. We obey because we love him. We don't earn more love by our obedience anymore than a parent's love waxes or wanes for their children. There's much in this passage, some of which is very convicting for myself. As I think about areas where I've been presumptuous or made those snap judgments. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we're called to reject that. To flee from that so that we can demonstrate his love to the world around us again going back to where we started this world this culture those who differ from us are not the enemy we may need to have discussions even with other believers who differ we may need to interact we may need to be in different churches but they're not the enemy. The world and the culture around us is our mission field. So we looked at last week the reminder that we are to bring the doctor, the healing balm from the doctor to sinners, to those who are sick and those who are needy. Let's pray. Father, we... Come this morning confessing our selfishness at times, our presumption, our arrogance. Father, forgive us where we have done this. Help to make us attune to where we make those snap judgments. Father, help us to instead look to demonstrate your love to show grace, to show forbearance, to show gentleness, to put on the fruit of the Spirit. And Father, with regard to our thinking, may we rightly esteem you. May we worship you. May you be the center of all of our worship and our praise. May we long for your return, but in the meantime, help us to be faithful in proclaiming the hope of salvation, of maintaining our distinctiveness in a world that wants us to look just like it, that thinks, wrongly so, that because we don't look like them, we must hate them. Help us to overcome that through our actions, through our words. Help us to refute the claims, as Peter said, through our lives, so that And the thing in which they may try to slander us, they may on account of our good deeds as they observe them, glorify you in the day of visitation. We pray these things in your name, amen.